The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dalamore. Welcome, faithful audience, and thank you for joining us for this second Patreon-supported Democratic Debate Analysis. I am your host, Jesse Dollimore, and sitting across from me, lovely as ever, and positive toward her her, her co-host, <laughs> me, Brenny Page. Yep. Real <laughs> positive. <laughs> I wish there was some way for us to share, and we'll get right to the debate, but I wish there was some way for us to technologically, uh, e- an easy way for people to get like a little bird's eye view of the conversation that happens prior to going hot with the mics. No, <laughs> that wouldn't be good. <laughs> it probably would not. No. Be, because I think you're the persona, the Brittany Page the podcast, the broadcast <laughs> Britney Page no. would be shattered. No, no. I am who I am, okay? <laughs> right. I just, I talk more S on the Jesse D uh, off the show than I do on the show. <laughs> so, and that only happens sometimes. That's not always. Right, mm-hmm. right. All right, well, let's get on with this. The second Democratic debate happened on Saturday, or as I want to say, Saturday, mm-hmm. and let's start with kind of our general impressions of of this Saturday debate, which in and of itself is kind of odd. There is kind of a conspiracy theory out there that uh, Debbie Wasserman's, I always fuck up her name, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is playing politics, and strategically organizing these debates on days and times that will get the least viewership, which may sound counterintuitive, except for the fact that Hillary only only stands to lose ground during these debates. It is only a, a benefit proposition for Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders because they trail. So they're going to make their mark and gain ground in these type, types of uh, venues. Mm-hmm. So I I haven't seen any number, any overnights, any ratings, any numbers. I don't know, but I would assume that. I mean, I think it's it's easy to assume that this was a poorly rated, poorly the numbers just don't add up to what they do with you know the Trump show. Over on the Republican side. Right. It was definitely, did I say definitely weird? It was definitely less entertaining than the GOP debate. And in fact, I think at one point I kind of leaned over to you and said, do you think that the GOP debate would be this normal if there were only three candidates? And you said yes. Well, because by that time, it's whittled down to three of your more mainstream, normal you know, they're not looking for sound bites. They're not calling women, you know, talk about their period blood. They're they're normal. <laughs> they're are they're more normal than 
than what there is now. Right. I was going to um, talk about the big difference between the Democratic debate and the Republican debate is within the first you know, 10 minutes of the Democratic debate, there was talk of science and scientists' views yeah. and things like that that you you don't hear on the Republican side, right. which makes it difficult to really compare them. Um, it's just less of like a train wreck when you watch well, the it's, Democratic it's, debate. It's, it's not who can be more of a crazy asshole when you deal with the Democrats. It's on the on the on that other side, it is. It's, it's fucking lunacy. Mm-hmm. It's not normal. Because you've got this cast of characters, and I say that pejoratively, it is this just a bunch of just just turds, just a bunch of turds out there. <laughs> the other thing is that this was held the day after the the attacks, the terrorist attacks in Paris. Right. So there have been pundits who have questioned whether or not they should have gone through with the debate or canceled it, and ultimately, I think it's the better move to. To, to move forward, to press on. Because if you if you cancel your events, and it, it kind of cows to what the terrorists are trying to do. And it goes back to that post-9-11 narrative of, you know, if you do this, if you do that, the terrorist wins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's some, some credence to that. So I, I'm glad they continued, not only for the fact that we got to see and witness, you know, the debate and more policy, but... Uh, you gotta, you gotta keep moving on with your regular life. You can't allow that type of horrible attack to stifle your way of life, the way that you operate your elections. You know, you cannot, you can't operate um, from the basis of fear. Mm-hmm. So, well, do you want to get into who you think won and lost? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, there were some some bad moves on. On, on everybody's part, there were some some fuck ups, some missteps. Right. Well, it was Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Martin O'Malley. That's right. Those were the three individuals in the debate. So I didn't really come away. I think ultimately, if anybody won, I think it's probably Bernie, but only like it's a fucking coin toss. I think really they ultimately came out on uh, pretty even. Mm-hmm. What I really took away from this debate was Martin O'Malley is. What he is a boring fucking snooze fest, man. He and it's not even that he's dumb or doesn't have an understanding of the nuance of public policy or how to be a leader or how to you know, I think he probably is all of those things. I think he's smart. I think he 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 gets it. I think he's nuanced. I think he's level headed. I think he's got the temperament for leadership and governance. But he is a fucking snooze fest. He is boring as shit. And he's just, he doesn't excite me. Well, I also think he's not as strong of an uh, authoritative speaker. Like when Hillary Clinton would speak, she speaks with authority. It, she makes you believe yeah. that she is this powerful person that can run the country. And then when Martin O'Malley speaks, he almost seems kind of timid. Yeah, it's and, weird. You know, he kind of stumbles and finds his way through his sentences, like I often do. And well, you know- I don't. I wouldn't say that. I think that he's. There were times where all of the candidates in this debate, which was weird, kind of stumbled and stammered and kind of fumbled their way through to their eventual point. And typically, that's not the way he operates. He is kind of a. He's locked on to his message. Now. He came across as desperate a lot of the time because he is, you know, trailing. He's the third place candidate and trailing by a lot. 
double digits to both of the others. And, you know, it showed. The desperation showed. I don't think he's long. I don't think he, he might be in for another month or so. But at some point, he's just going to have to call it quits and understand that he's it's not looking good for him. It's only downhill from here. Mm-hmm. So, but before we before we start though, um, what do I guess the experts? I don't want to shit on my own <laughs> on my own opinions, but what do the experts say? Let's go to five thirty eight for what they say: who won and lost. So 538 says, unlike the first Democratic debate, we didn't see Hillary Clinton as the clear winner. Her average grade was basically the same as Sanders, who did about as well as he did in the first debate. Clinton and Sanders did beat O'Malley, who earned his second C-plus average rating from the 538 crew. So the average rating that Hillary Clinton received was a B, and same with Bernie Sanders. So 538 staff watches the debate, gives Mm -hmm. commentary the whole time, and then gives a rating. Um, the low rating for Hillary Clinton was a C plus and the low rating for Bernie was a C. So pretty even across the board, kind of what you were saying Mm -hmm. that it's, but they, they give her the edge where I went the other way with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are a couple things which we'll get to of why I think that's the case. It's, it's the, the, the colloquial saying stepping on one's dick and she did it. And I think in grand fashion, she did it. And but we'll get to it. We'll get to it. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get to the clips and let's start with the opening statements. Those are the rules. So let's get started. You will each have one minute for an opening statement to share your thoughts about the attacks in Paris and lay out your vision for America. First, Senator Sanders. Well, John, let me concur with you and with all Americans who are shocked and disgusted by what we saw in Paris yesterday. Together, leading the world, this country will rid our planet of this barbarous organization called ISIS. I'm running for president because as I go around this nation, I talk to a lot of people. And what I hear is people's concern that the economy we have is a rigged economy. People are working longer hours for lower wages, and almost all of the new income and wealth goes to the top 1%. And then on top of that, we've got a corrupt campaign finance system in which millionaires and billionaires are pouring huge sums of money into super PACs, heavily influencing the political process. What my campaign is about is a political revolution. Millions of people standing up and saying, enough is enough, our government belongs to all of us, and not just a handful of billionaires. So it's kind of, um, well, let's put it this way. I wrote in my notes several times, bread and butter. Because this is Bernie Sanders' bread and butter. He's going back to his message. He's going back to his standard trope. And I don't say that negatively. Um, but it's kind of, and you'll see, because the other, the other candidates kind of stuck on message with the Paris thing and the international relations. And he's pretty weak on that. That's not his strong point at all. And it was a bummer that he got picked first because he wasn't able to kind of adjust on the fly. So let's move on to Hillary Clinton. Secretary Clinton. Well, our prayers are with the people of France tonight, but that is not enough. We need to have a resolve that will bring the world together to root out the kind of 
radical jihadist ideology that motivates organizations like ISIS, a barbaric, ruthless, violent, jihadist, terrorist group. This election is not only about electing a president, it's also about choosing our next commander-in-chief. And I will be laying out in detail what I think we need to do with our friends and allies in Europe and elsewhere to do a better job of coordinating efforts against the scourge of terrorism. Our country deserves no less because all of the other issues we want to deal with depend upon us being secure and strong. So again, it kind of puts into perspective that Bernie Sanders wasn't really, he either wasn't prepared and took it like they had a pre-canned statement because they, they know their time. It's going to be a minute and they want him to pivot to where he's strong. And really, it might be just my opinion. I think this is kind of established that international relations isn't really his his deal. So she she stuck with the, the talking points of of her particular campaign relative to this, which is radical jihadists. She said that word twice. We'll get into that later in the debate why that. Uh, it becomes an issue later on. That particular phrase. That's right. But Bernie Sanders has been criticized in comparing his opening statement to the others because he transitioned so quickly away from discussing the Paris issue. Right. Well, it really just points out his weakness. It, it just makes it blaringly obvious. Which it's unfortunate because, I mean, we need a president who can speak about these issues, who can be there and guide us through these issues like when President Obama gave the statement after this happened. I mean, he's going to be having to give a statement when these things happen and he's not going to be able to just talk about it for a couple seconds and then quickly transition on. Right. You You can't just, this is terrible. This is going to be our response. You talk about that for 10 seconds and then move on to domestic policy. Right. That's, that really is where he lacks. I, I, I'm sure I've, I know I've said this before that you know you can't be uh, kind of a one-trick pony and be president of the United States. And although I think he had the edge in this debate, if at all, I mean, if anybody was the winner, it's Bernie. Um, he's he's showing some chinks in the armor. All right, Martin O'Malley, opening statement. Governor O'Malley. My heart, like all of us in this room, John, and all the people across our country, my hearts go out to the people of France in this moment of loss, parents and, and, and sons and daughters and family members. And um, as our hearts go out to them and as our prayers go out to them, we must remember this, that this is the new face of conflict and warfare, not in the 20th century, but the new face of conflict and warfare in the 21st century. And there is no nation on the planet better able to adapt to this change than our nation. We must be able to work collaboratively with others. We must anticipate these threats before they happen. This is the new sort of challenge, the new sort of threat that does in fact require new thinking, fresh approaches, and new leadership. As a former mayor and a former governor, there was never a single day, John, when I went to bed or woke up without realizing that this could happen in our own country. We have a lot of work to do to better prepare our nation and to better lead this world into this new century. So well prepared. Yeah, really good. Clearly a a prepared statement, but delivered well. He nothing he said. I don't think anybody could could disagree with. It's all standard fare. So but again, 
not really exciting. Just yeah. what it is. I mean, they don't need to be exciting, right? But No, but they need to be inspiring. Yeah, that's true. They, maybe not exciting. Maybe that's the wrong word. Uh, yeah, because I, I think we're getting a little too used to like the excitement well, of Donald but, Trump. Or yeah, but something. I, but I'm not I'm not praising Donald Trump for that level right, of excitement. Right, right. I mean, this is he. I don't feel inspired. Like I feel inspired by Bernie. Sa- I'm not going to fucking vote for him. Mm-hmm. But I feel inspired <laughs> by Bernie Sanders because he's he re- he's passionate about what he believes and he's not a hateful fuck. You know what I mean? I mean, he, I don't know where we've gone in this country where that's. That's the the high bar, is that you're not a hateful fuck, <laughs> and I believe that you believe what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's a bummer, but, eh, you know, it's what it is. Mm-hmm. So they start the round of questionings with Hillary Clinton, and they're asking her about strategy specifics, the strategy against ISIL and the fight against terrorism, and they, they bring up, because she has been a member of the Obama administration, at the highest levels of the Obama administration... They bring up quotes of President Obama, her former boss, and this is how it went. The terror attacks last night underscore the biggest challenge facing the next president in the United States. At a time of crisis, the country and the world look to the president for leadership and for answers. So, Secretary Clinton, I'd like to start with you. Hours before the attacks, President Obama said, I don't think ISIS is gaining strength. 72% of Americans think the fight against ISIS is going badly. Won't the legacy of this administration, which is which you were a part of, won't that legacy be that it underestimated the threat from ISIS? Well, John, I think that uh, we have to look at ISIS as the leading threat of an international terror network. It cannot be contained. It must be defeated. There is no question in my mind that if we summon our resources, both our leadership resources and all of the tools at our disposal, not just military force, which should be used as a last resort, but our diplomacy, our development aid, law enforcement, sharing of intelligence in a much more uh, open and cooperative way, that we can bring people together. But it cannot be an American fight. And I think what the president has consistently said, which I agree with, is that we will support those who take the fight to ISIS. That is why we have troops in Iraq that are helping to train and build back up the Iraqi military, why we have special operators in Syria working with the Kurds and Arabs, so that we can be supportive. But this cannot be an American fight, although American leadership is essential. But, uh, Secretary Clinton, the question was about where was ISIS underestimated? And I'll, I'll just add, the president referred to ISIS as the JVU in a speech to the Council on Foreign Relations in June of 2014, said, I could not have predicted the extent to which ISIS could be effective in seizing cities in Iraq. So you've got prescriptions for the future, but how, how do we know if those prescriptions are any good if you missed it in the past? Well, John, look, I think that what happened when we abided by the agreement that George W. Bush uh, made with the Iraqis to leave Uh, by 2011, is that an Iraqi army was left that had been trained and that was prepared to defend Iraq. Unfortunately, Nouri al-Maliki, the prime minister, set about decimating it. And then with the revolution against Assad, and I did early on say we needed to try to 
find a way to train and equip moderates very early so that we would have a better idea of how to deal with Assad, because I thought there would be uh, extremist groups filling the vacuum. So, yes, this has developed. I think that there are many other reasons why it has, in addition uh, to what happened in the region, but I don't think that the United States uh, has the bulk of the responsibility. I really put that on Assad and on the Iraqis and on the region itself. How could we not have the bulk of the responsibility when they blame George W. Bush and the war, with, they blame the creation of ISIS with that? So that's not George W. Bush's war. That's America's war. You're running to be president of these United States, and it's a it's the United States war. You can't just you, you can't just invoke the name of George W. Bush and and think you're off the hook. Mm-hmm. She and also she doesn't answer these questions. Did we underestimate? You know, your boss called them the JV. Hundreds of people outside of the region have been killed at the hands, directly at the hands of ISIS. And indirectly, even more, through ISIS-inspired attacks. Doesn't doesn't sound very JV. No, not at all. Well, well and it, it hurts her to admit. Did, did you underestimate it? Yes, we did. Yeah, of course. It hurts her to admit that because if she's going to be the president of the United States, she needs to be able to understand the biggest threats to the nation and handle those threats appropriately. And if you're underestimating them... Well, that's not good. Right. Well, Martin O'Malley, it was kind of the same way as it was last debate where it was kind of rapid fire. There's only three of them there, so they can easily transition from one to the next to the next to the next. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, so this is in the same vein, talking about the ISIL strategy and the Obama policies, Martin O'Malley. Okay, Governor O'Malley, would you critique the administration's response to ISIS? If the United States doesn't lead, who leads? No, I, I, would, um, I would disagree with, with Secretary Clinton respectfully on this score. Uh, this actually is America's fight. It cannot solely be America's fight. America is best when we work in collaboration with our allies. America is best when we are actually standing up to evil in this world. And ISIS, make no mistake about it, is an evil in this world. ISIS has brought down a Russian airliner. ISIS has now attacked a Western democracy in, in France. And we do have a role in this, not solely ours, but we must work collaboratively with other nations. The great failing of these last 10 or 15 years, John, has been our failing of human intelligence on the ground. Our role in the world is not to roam the globe looking for new dictators to topple. Our role in the world is to make ourselves a beacon of hope, make ourselves stronger at home, but also our role in the world, yes, is also to confront evil when it rises. We took out the safe haven in Afghanistan, but now there is undoubtedly a larger safe haven, and we must rise to this occasion in collaboration and with alliances to confront it and invest in the future much better human intelligence so we know what the next steps are. Ultimately... That is a good answer. That's a great answer. It's, you know, he shined very early on, and then it kind of, it broke up, Brittany Page. It, it <laughs> like I said, it was downhill from here. Yeah. So they move on to Bernie Sanders, and they, they throw in the little, a little spicy nugget of climate change. And I don't know if you've been watching the news, but there was a little consternation over his 
his linkage of climate change to global terrorism. Senator Sanders, you said you want to rid the planet of ISIS. In the previous debate, you said the greatest threat to national security was climate change. Do you still believe that? Absolutely. In fact, climate change is directly related to the growth of terrorism. And if we do not get our act together and listen to what the scientists say, you're going to see countries all over the world. This is what the CIA says. They're going to be struggling over limited amounts of water, limited amounts of land to grow their crops, and you're going to see all kinds of international conflict. But of course, international terrorism is a major issue that we have got to address today. And I agree with much of what the secretary and the governor have said. But let me have one area of disagreement with the secretary. I think she said something like, the bulk of the responsibility is not ours. Well, in fact, I would argue that the disastrous invasion of Iraq, something that I strongly opposed, has unraveled the region completely and led to the rise of al-Qaeda uh, and to uh, ISIS. Now, in fact, what we have got to do, and I think there is widespread agreement here, is the United States cannot do it alone. What we need to do is lead an international coalition which includes, very significantly, the Muslim nations in that region who are going to have to fight and defend their way of life. Quickly, just uh, let me ask you a follow-up on that, Senator Sanders. When you say the disastrous vote on Iraq, uh, let's just be clear about what you're saying. You're saying Secretary Clinton, who was then Senator Clinton, voted for the Iraq war. And are you making a direct link between her vote for that war and what's happening now for ISIS, just so everybody well, can be clear at home? Any, I don't think any sensible person would disagree that the invasion of Iraq led to the massive level of instability we are seeing right now. I think right. that was one of the worst foreign policy blunders in the modern history of the United States. All right, let's let Secretary Clinton respond to that. Before we let Secretary Clinton respond to that, let's uh, let's talk about that. I I agree with Bernie Sanders. And I'm this is talking to someone who supported the invasion initially in Iraq because of the fact that the 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 intelligence we had, the, the global intelligence that not only we had but the French and uh, many other nations, it led us in saying that there were weapons of mass destruction being shuffled from place to place. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, that was all we we based our decision on bad info, bad intel, and it doesn't. You can't justify it. It's a bad fucking situation. So I, I think he's right, and it's easy for him to make that decision because, or to you know, make that bold claim because he did not vote to go into Iraq. Hillary Clinton did, so she's kind of stuck in a place where she has to, in some ways, justify it. What about the climate change is directly related to the rise of global terrorism? I think it's it's a stretch at best. He's talking about some dystopian existence in the future where crops are hard to, to grow and water is scarce and people will... It's like a Mad Max situation where... The, those who create the, who control the water are going to have attacks on them. And I, we're talking about hundreds of years in the future, if, it, if ever it comes. Right. So it's not, I mean, the rise of global terrorism isn't presently due to the fact that we're running out of water. Absolutely and, not. Okay. It is due to radical Islam. But that's what he was trying that, to suggest. It's, it, yeah, it, well, I don't even think it was a suggestion. He was he was just flat out saying it that oh yeah, they're absolutely tied together. And I don't see that. I in fact, I think it's it's not that oh, that that's a stretch. I think it's just it's complete bullshit. It's a 
little confusing. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to get to now Secretary Clinton's um, response. And this is where she starts squirming over the, the, what we, we've been talking about, about radical jihadists or radical Islamism. Secretary Clinton, you mentioned radical jihadists. Yes. Marco Rubio, also running for president, said that this attack showed, and the attack in Paris showed, that we are at war with radical Islam. Do you agree with that characterization, radical Islam? I don't think we're at war with Islam. I don't think we're at war with all Muslims. I think we're at war with... All right, I'm going to pause it. That's not what he said. Right. He said, do you think we are at war with radical Islam? Right, not just Islam, not all Muslims. That's what she ch- turn- turned it into. She Absolutely. Said, she said Islam, and she said not all Muslims. Right, he no didn't one, say that. No one is no one of any rep, rep, reputation, no one of any import, no one with any serious, that anybody takes serious, is fucking saying that. He said radical Islam, and she squirmed. So actually, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to replay, because it, this is important. It really demonstrates and illustrates her fundamental lack of understanding of what's at stake here and what the root cause of this is. Secretary Clinton, you mentioned radical jihadists. Yes. Marco Rubio, also running for president, said that this attack showed, and the attack in Paris showed, that we are at war with radical Islam. Do you agree with that characterization, radical Islam? I don't think we're at war with Islam. I don't think we're at war with all Muslims. I think we're at war with jihadists who have... Just to interrupt, uh, he he didn't say all Muslims. He just said radical Islam. Is that a phrase you don't... I think that you can you can talk about Islamists who um, clearly are also jihadists, but I think it's it's not particularly helpful to make the case that uh, Senator Sanders was just making that I agree with that we've got to reach out to Muslim countries, we've got to have them be part of our coalition. If they hear people running for uh, president who basically short cut it to say we are somehow against Islam. That was one of the real contributions, despite all the other problems that George W. Bush made after 9-11, when he basically said, after going to a mosque in Washington, we are not at war with Islam or Muslims. We are at war with violent extremism. We are at war with people who use their religion for purposes of power and oppression. Um, and yes, we are at war with those people, but I don't want us to be painting with too broad a brush. The reason I ask is that you gave a speech at Georgetown University in which you said that it was important to show, quote, respect even for one's enemies, trying to understand and insofar as psychologically possible, empathize with their perspective and point of view. Can you explain what that means in the context of this kind of barbarism? I think with this kind of barbarism and nihilism, um, it's very hard to understand, other than the lust for power, the rejection of modernity, the total disregard for human rights, uh, freedom, or any other value that we know and uh, respect. Historically, it is important to try to understand your adversary in order to figure out how they are thinking, what they will be doing, how they will react. Um, I, I plead uh, that it's very difficult when you deal with uh, ISIS and organizations like that whose, whose behavior is so barbaric and so vicious uh, that it doesn't seem to have any purpose other than lust for killing and power, and that's very difficult to put ourselves in John, the other shoes. Well, it's just, it's a, it's a line of utter and complete bullshit. She's completely avoiding the question 
and wants to bury her head in the sand. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate because, like she said, that it's not useful for certain populations to hear presidential candidates speaking in a disparaging way about an entire population. I understand that, but you're not doing that. Not only if that, you were to talk about Islamic extremists, you would not be doing that. Well, you would also, it, it, you're running in tandem with what I was going to say, which is Muslim majority countries... If you, if you follow Pew Research and you follow the different uh, studies and research that has been done, they're also opposed to radical Islamism. Right. We're talking about a radical fundamentalist viewpoint of this faith. We're not talking about all Muslims. No one's doing that. And the, the fact that you're, you're, you're kid-gloving the, Muslim world, the world's Muslim population means that you disrespect them. To me, it means... She thinks they're stupid. She thinks they're not intelligent enough to understand the differences between the criticism of a radical ideological um, point of view and normal, run-of-the-mill, every, average, everyday Islam. Right. Well, and here's the interesting thing with, with liberals, which are my people, <laughs> is they are, you know, they can freely criticize the extremists that are on the Christians Christian end right they can criticize the Westboro Baptist Church they can I've heard Hillary Clinton talk about you know Christians not accepting modernity where it relates to all kinds of things yeah but when it comes to Islam it's suddenly a different thing well and they can't speak in the same way about it when it all religious extremism is similar let's talk about that example real quickly the Westboro if someone was to to criticize as well they should the Westboro Baptist Church, no one is saying, oh, but you're leveling criticism against all Christians in America. Right. No, you're not. You're criticizing that wacky, nutty, fundamentalist viewpoint that they hold. The extremists. That's exactly right. The other thing I want to say really quick is that liberals also really focus on wanting to understand the perspective of others, right? They talk about privilege. You can't understand the plight of someone else. You need to, you know, hear it from their perspective. Well, then why doesn't Hillary Clinton listen to someone like Majid Nawaz or Ayan Hirsi Ali? Right. Yeah. Why don't you listen to someone's perspective that has been in it? And now what they're saying. And use the words they use, which is Islamism. Right. Use the words they use and understand from their perspective because they have been there. Well, she's so focused on using the word jihadism and jihadists. Well, are there are there environmental jihadis? Are there Christian jihadis? No, it's it's a word that is comes straight out of Islam. It's in the Quran. This is not. It is an, an Islamic um, ideal. It's not, it's not used anywhere else. It comes straight from Islam. So you're just a sideways way of bullshitting around and not really talking about what we're facing here. And it really makes me wonder if she's capable of, of, of facing head on the global problem of radical Islamism if she won't even have the courage to say its name. It's like Majid Nawaz said, it's the Voldemort effect. Right. Yeah. So the the conversation continues about this exact same topic, and they get Bernie Sanders involved. Well, do, do right either, now, just very quickly, do either of you, ra- radical Islam, do either of you use I don't, that I, phrase? I don't think the term is what's important. What is important to understand <laughs> is we have organizations, whether it is ISIS or Al-Qaeda, 
who do believe we should go back several thousand years. We should make women third-class citizens, that we should allow children to be sexually assaulted, that they are a danger to modern society, and that this world, with American leadership, can and must come together to destroy them. We can do that. John. And it requires an entire world to come together, including, in a very active way, the Muslim nations. This coming from the most liberal guy on the stage, a guy who would agree that words matter, that that's why we don't, it's not sexual preference anymore, because words are powerful. Words have meaning. So why is it we, well, what, what's it matter what you call, oh, if it's jihadist or when everything else matters what you call it in the transgender world and you know all, we're learning so much about that and the words are shifting and they're very fluid about what terminology is most appropriate because words matter right the language matters it the matters language you use is huge yeah so and that was like a little poem <laughs> <laughs> so this continues and they get martin o'malley involved. Governor O'Malley, you've been making the case when you talk about lack of forward vision, you're essentially saying that Secretary Clinton lacks that vision, and this critique matches up with this discussion of language. The critique is that the softness of language betrays a softness of approach. So if this language, if you don't call it by what it is, how can your approach be effective to the cause? That's the critique. I believe calling it what it is, it's to say radical jihadis. That's to call what it is. But John, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that all of our Muslim American neighbors in this country are somehow our enemies here. Again, I'm going to stop the clip. No one's saying that. Stop dragging out this tired, fucking weak trope that no one buys into. Unless you're trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator who's viewing this debate, no one else thinks that. And if you, if you do think that, you need to study the topic. You need to do some reading and understand glo global Islamic terror and its roots. No one is trying to call out your average American Muslim who goes to work nine to five, just trying to put food on his on his on his family's table and live his life, who loves America, who loves his way of life, and also happens to believe. In a fairy tale. That's not dangerous. No one's trying to single that person out. Stop conflating. It's just dis. It, I feel insulted when they do this shit. They are our first line of defense. And we are going to be able to defeat ISIS on the ground there as well as in this world uh, because of the Muslim Americans in our country and throughout the world who understand that this brutal and barbaric group is perverting the name of a great world religion. And now, like never before, we need our Muslim American neighbors to stand up and to, uh, and to be a part of this. Again, I mean, I, I blew my wad a little bit mid-clip. <laughs> Everything I said a few seconds ago still stands. I'll tell you, if there was a winner, and it's just coming to me now, if there was a winner in this debate, it was John Dickerson. Because he, again, he didn't ask as tough of questions, I think, as, as maybe Anderson Cooper did. But 
he's holding their feet to the fire. I mean, he went all three of these candidates, asked him the same thing about the words we're using and, the, you know, the juxtaposition of using jihadist uh, uh, rather than uh, Islamist. Right. So the the additional moderators, it was John Dickerson, Nancy Cordes. Let's go with that. <laughs> Kevin Cooney and Kathy Obradovich. Obradovich. Oh, yeah. He said it fast. Kathy Obradovich. Or Obradovich. Something. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the next question was for Hillary Clinton, and it was a specific question about de- specifically whether she would declare war on ISIS. Secretary Clinton, the uh, French president has called this attack an act of war. Yes. A couple of days ago, you were asked if you would declare war on ISIS, and you said no. Would you, would you, what would you say now? Well, we, ha- we have an authorization to use military force against terrorists. We uh, passed it after 9-11. And you think that covers all of this? It, it certainly does cover it. I, I would like to see it updated. If you were in the Senate, if you were in the Senate would you be okay with uh, the Commander-in-Chief doing that without coming back to you? No, it would have to go through the Congress. And I know the White House has actually been working with members of Congress. Maybe now we can get it moving again so that we can upgrade it so that it does include all the tools and everything in our arsenal that we can use to try to work with our allies and our friends, come up with better intelligence. You know, it is difficult finding intelligence that is actionable in a lot of these places, but we have to keep trying. And we have to do more to prevent the flood of foreign fighters who have gone to Syria, especially the ones with Western passports, to come back. So there's a lot of work we need to do, and I want to be sure that what's called the AUMF has the authority that is needed going forward. You know, when I first heard this, I was kind of bothered. It kind of ruffled my feathers that she wouldn't just say, yes, I would declare war on ISIL. Or no. Or or no. Well, she did. She did back up. I mean, she didn't come right out and say no, but she she had said it previously. So I think it was implied. It's interesting how in the beginning she said it wasn't America's fight, though. Right, right. Yeah, but but then talks about this author. I didn't even think of that. Right. But then talks about this authorization of force. Well, my point was that I, when it, I first heard it, it did bother me. But after I've, I've thought about it and I've listened again, you know, this will be once I once by the t- when this is all over, I've been listening to the the debate four maybe five times. You could just recite it. Yeah. Um. I, I don't think it bothers me as much because you still have the the logistical capabilities that you have, it doesn't make you more powerful if you declare war. It doesn't make us more serious about it. It's just, it, for me, it's more just theatrics. You mean like how Jeb Bush has said we should declare war? Yeah, I don't think it matters. I mean, it's, 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 it's the same thing's going to happen. A bomb that you drop or a bullet that you fire out of a, out of a weapon, it, it doesn't have more impact if it's under a declaration of war or whether it's under a, 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 an authorization of force. Right. You know. And by the way, France has already started taking care of biz. Yeah, they have. Uh, Francois alone was not fucking around. We'll get to that. Listen to episode 172, which will come out tomorrow, and you'll be able to hear that. Yeah, I'm plugging episodes too, huh? Yeah. Completely unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> so they moved on into the, 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 the realm of refugees that are fleeing the ISIL just shit show in Syria. And they, they got specifically in about screening for refugees. And this, is, this really, I think, juxtaposes 
Hillary Clinton, she wants to act like she's a progressive and act like she's a liberal, but she goes from talking about, for one, I want you to notice that there's no details about the manner with which we will screen for security purposes and intelligence gathering these refugees. But she makes a quick pivot and starts justifying our defense budget, which I have said many times, even as a, a veteran, uh, is bloated. We could cut our military budget by, oh, Jesus, 25% and still have by far the most powerful military on the planet. Secretary Clinton, let me ask you a question from Twitter, which mm. has come in. Uh, and this is a question on this issue of, uh, of refugees. The question is, with the U.S. preparing to absorb Syrian refugees, how do you propose we screen those coming in to keep our citizens safe? I think that is the number one requirement. I also said that we should take uh, uh, increased numbers of refugees. The administration originally said 10. I said we should go to 65. But only if we have as careful a screening and vetting process as we can imagine, whatever resources it takes. Uh, because I do not want us to uh, in any way uh, inadvertently allow people who wish us harm to come into our country. But I want to say a quick word about what uh, Senator Sanders and, and, then o and Governor O'Malley said. We do have to take a hard look at the defense budget, and we do have to figure out how we get ready to fight the adversaries of the future, not the past. But we have to also be very clear that we do have some continuing challenges. We've got challenges in the South China Sea because of what China is doing in building up uh, these uh, military installations. We have problems with Russia. Just the other day, Russia allowed a uh, television camera to see the plans for a drone submarine that could carry a tactical nuclear weapon. So we've got to look at the full range and then come to some smart decisions about how to have a more streamlined and focused defense. All right. So... And it's look, this is something I've talked about, that our defense budget, we spend more on our military than if you order the nations in order of power and military budgets. Uh, we, we spend more than the next 10 nations, mm -hmm. nations tw uh, 2 through 11, we spend more than them combined on ours. So because they're building islands in the South China Sea, because of this, we have to maintain this bloated, overreaching, overspending Defense Department. Come on. I mean, that's, that's Republican talk. It's, it certainly shouldn't be coming out of the lead Democratic candidate. Well, it's not all Republican talk. Rand Paul. Right. Well, <laughs> it, the one, well, I don't even think John Kasich believes that. Right. Look, spending, being good stewards of the government's money, the people's money, should be everyone's responsibility, even those who are in support of our military. We need, we need to do it wisely. We're in tenuous times financially. So uh, they moved off this and on to more domestic financial type of policy, taxation in this case. And they threw Bernie Sanders one of several softball questions. Senator Sanders, you want to make public college free altogether. You want to increase Social Security benefits, and you want to send, spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. So you've said that to do some of these things, you'll impose a tax on top earners. How high would their rate go in a Sanders administration? Let me 
put those proposals, and you're absolutely right. That is what I want to do. That is what has to happen if we're going to revitalize and rebuild the crumbling middle class. Uh, in the last 30 years, there has been a massive redistribution of wealth. And I know that term gets my Republican friends nervous. Problem is, this redistribution has gone in the wrong direction. Trillions of dollars have gone from the middle class and working families to the top one-tenth of one percent who have doubled the percentage of wealth they now own. Yes, I do believe that we must end corporate loopholes such that major corporations year after year pay virtually zero in federal income tax because they're stashing their money in the Cayman Islands. Yes, I do believe there must be a tax on Wall Street speculation. We bailed out Wall Street. It's their time to bail out the middle class, help our kids be able to go to college tuition free. So we pay for this by due demanding that the wealthiest people and the largest corporation who have gotten away with murder for years start paying their fair share. But let's get specific. How high would you go? You've said before you'd go above 50 percent. How high? We haven't come up with an exact number yet, but it will not be as high as the number under Dwight D. Eisenhower, which was 90 percent. But it will be. <laughs> I'm not that much of a socialist now. compared to Eisenhower. <laughs> We are going to end the absurdity, as Warren Buffett often reminds us. That's right. That billionaires pay an effective tax rate lower than nurses or truck drivers. That makes no sense at all. There has to be real tax reform, and the wealthiest and large corporations will pay when I'm president. So do you hear Martin O'Malley just being a fucking cheerleader over there? Mm -hmm. It's like he doesn't know his mic's on. He's like, yeah, yeah, good point. (laughs) (laughs) So... Again, kind of a softball, really set him up for what I wrote down as bread and butter because they lead him right in and he goes right into his very well-constructed, very well-scripted, very well-rehearsed talking points. So Vox did a little write-up on his response to this question and they say very, very high tax rates on the very richest Americans are hardly unprecedented. While a quite tiny fraction of Americans paid the 91% top rate, the threshold was about $3.5 million in today's dollars, which, given how much poorer and more equal the country was then, Eisenhower, right. many fewer people met, some did, and that likely played a significant role in deterring extremely high executive salaries and keeping inequality low. However, an important caveat is in order. Sanders has frequently called for the abolition of the preference of capital gains income, which is currently taxed at a top rate of 23.8%, well below the 39.6% ordinary top rate. He'd also add a 6.2% tax on capital gains above 2 250000 to help pay for a Social Security expansion. But a 91% tax rate on capital gains really would be historically unprecedented. From 1954 to 1961, during most of Eisenhower's presidency, the top rate on long-term capital gains was 25%. The gap between the ordinary rate and the capital gains rate was 66 points, over four times larger than the current gap. So they're saying that there are going to be some historically unprecedented changes in terms of how high the for instance capital gains tax rate is going to be sure even though he compared himself to eisenhower and said oh i'm not as i'm not as bad as he is he was making a joke right which by the way it got a good laugh from the audience the the 
trying to compare or say that uh, Dwight Eisenhower was a socialist. You know what I mean? It's just, it's funny. Right. So they ended saying, but if Sanders wants to propose rates on capital gains in excess of 40%, he needs to defend that on its own merits, not through reference to history. Uh, Yeah. But I don't know. Listen, I don't, I don't know either way. I I think 40% might be a little high, but I think it it could stand um, some tweaking. I mean, even if we went back to the tax rates during the Reagan administration, they would be far higher than they are now. And people are making a lot more money and could probably afford it more just based on the technological advancements and the difference of the economy that we have now. You know, things are a little different. So they kind of shift here. We're going to move on. Um, They go to border policy and they talk to Martin O'Malley, who uses it as, I think, a very transparent attempt to get the attention of Donald Trump so he will use, he will, you know, he's poking a bear. And when you get Donald Trump to start talking about you, it raises your profile. And I think what he did here was engineered to have that happen. Candidates, we've already um, heard your answers on what you would do with Syrian refugees. But a crucial part of the immigration debate here at home is control of our own borders. Republicans say the borders, securing borders, is a top priority. Democrats say they want to plan for comprehensive immigration reform. So, Governor O'Malley, are you willing to compromise on this particular issue to focus on border security first in favor of keeping the country safer? Well, Mr. Cooney, we've actually been focusing on border security to the exclusion of talking about comprehensive immigration reform. In fact, if more border security and these and more and more deportations were going to bring our Republican brothers and sisters to the table, it would have happened long ago. The fact of the matter is, and let's say it in our debate because you'll never hear this from that uh, immigrant bashing carnival barker, Donald Trump, the truth of the matter is... The truth of the matter is, net immigration from Mexico last year was zero. Fact check me. Go ahead, check it out. But the truth of the matter is, if we want wages to go up, we've got to get 11 million of our neighbors out of the -the off-the-book shadow economy and into the full light of an American economy. That's what our parents and grandparents always did. That's what we need to do as a nation. Yes, we must protect our borders. But there is no substitute for having comprehensive immigration reform with a pathway to citizenship for 11 million people, uh, many of whom have known no other country but the United States of America. Our symbol is the Statue of Liberty. It is not a barbed wire fact. Thank you. It's got to be it's got to be kind of a bummer when your next awesome line that you say gets stepped on by your own applause line. Yeah. By, by your, your own applause. Because he said our symbol is the Statue of Liberty, not a bar- barbed wire fence, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's great imagery. It's beautiful and true, I believe. But, uh, he, you know, he, he, what do you think there with the Donald Trump thing? Well, Donald Trump responded almost immediately. (laughs) So what he did was what he did in trying to provoke him worked. Yeah. And this is what Donald Trump tweeted during the debate. Hillary and Sanders are not doing well. (laughs) But what is the failed former mayor of Baltimore doing on that stage? O'Malley is a clown. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see this week what happens when he goes out on the stump and gives his speeches because... I think even Donald Trump understands that this was calculated. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they move on. 
are actually kind of stay in the same ballpark here with immigration. Uh, but they, they're tying it. They're asking Bernie Sanders a question and tying immigration to the wage issue, the minimum wage issue. Senator Sanders, uh, you've actually talked about immigration as being a wage issue in the United States. And I want to actually go directly to the wage issue now. Uh, you've called for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour everywhere in the country. But the president's former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Alan Kruger, has said a national increase of $15 could lead to undesirable and unintended consequences of job loss. What level of job loss would you consider unacceptable? I think, let me say this. Uh, you know, no public policy doesn't have, in some cases, negative consequences. But at the end of the day, what you have right now are millions of Americans working two or three jobs because their wages that they are earning are just too low. Real inflation accounted for wages has declined precipitously over the years. So I believe that, in fact, this country needs to move toward a living wage. It is not a radical idea to say that if somebody works 40 hours a week, that person should not be living in poverty. It is not a radical idea to say that a single mom should be earning enough money to take care of her kids. So I believe that over the next few years, not tomorrow, but over the next few years, we have got to move the minimum wage to a living wage, 15 bucks an hour, and I apologize to nobody but for that. You, you said there are, there are consequences. You said there are, there are consequences for, for any policy. Do you, do you think job losses are a consequence? This is what I think. Accepting? This is what many economists believe. That one of the reasons that real unemployment in this country is 10%, one of the reasons that African-American youth unemployment and underemployment is 51%, is the average worker in America doesn't have any disposable income. You have no disposable income when you're making 10, 12 bucks an hour. When we put money into the hands of working people, they're going to go out buy goods, they're going to go out buy services, and they are going to create jobs in doing that. That is the kind of economy I believe. Put money in the hands of working people. Raise the minimum wage to fifteen bucks an hour. Again, I'll say it again: bread and butter. I mean, they set him up. I mean, they're asking him a question, and I don't know that it's calculated that they're premeditated setting him up for a, for an easy, you know, knocking it out of the park. But he he hits his stride in moments like this with. With, with applause lines like, and I apologize to no one for that. That's, that's powerful. Yeah, that's good. But I mean, in terms of a federal $15 minimum wage, you know, someone should debate him on that. Well, I think a federal minimum wage is, doesn't make any sense. Because, you know, if, if you set the minimum wage at $15, well, that's $15 in New York City. But if you live in Anniston, Alabama... If you live in uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi, $15 is a whole lot different, a whole lot more money than it is in New York City or Los Angeles. Well, here I'll tell you, right now in New York City, Manhattan, the minimum wage is eight seventy-five, and the cost of living adjusted, what that's worth, is $3.86. Yeah, no, I, I, you're right. And so, but if you go to somewhere like Nashville, their uh, minimum wage is seven dollars and twenty-five cents, but cost of living adjusted, it's like eight dollars and ten cents. Yeah, it's worth more. Right. So that's what I mean. A federal uh, minimum wage doesn't really make sense. It should be tied and linked directly to cost of living or some kind of other metric, 
not just across the board, $15. Wow, San Jose and San Francisco are a bummer. Bummer, (laughs) for sure. All right. So they kind of stay on this, and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, they kind of, they're back and forth on this, and Hillary Clinton, she advocates for a $12 minimum wage, which I think it might be a little dangerous territory for her because she's... She's departing with, I think, the base of the party, which really fundamentally agrees with the $15 minimum wage. You're seeing cities like Seattle. You're seeing cities like San Francisco, cities like Los Angeles doing it, and they are doing it well, and workers are able to have more disposable income. But I do take what Alan Kruger said seriously. He is the foremost expert in our country on the minimum wage uh, and what its effects uh, are. And the overall message is that it doesn't result in job loss. However, what Alan Kruger said in the piece you're referring to is that if we went to $15, there are no international comparisons. That is why I support a $12 national federal minimum wage. That is what the Democrats in the Senate have put forward as a uh, proposal. But I do believe that is a minimum. And places like Seattle, like Los Angeles, like New York City, they can go higher. It's what happened in uh, Governor O'Malley's state. There was a minimum wage at the state level and some places went higher. I think that is the smartest way to be able to move forward. Because if you go to 12, it would be the highest historical average we've ever had. Yeah, but look, it should always be going up. I mean... Well, With you all would due respect it, to you Secretary would Clinton, to the median wage. Of course, you would yeah, do the twelve, should, and you would yeah. index it. But I, we, I, I think take, we need to stop we, taking our advice from economists on Wall Street and start taking advice from economists. Wall Street's a good issue to talk about. Model of economics. All right, Senator. you have given me the perfect segue. We are going to talk about Wall Street, but now we've got to go to do a commercial. And I'm going to save you from that commercial. We're going to move right on into them talking about Wall Street. And this is where I think Bernie scored a lot of good points. And Hillary, she, you know, did the old proverbial stepping on of her dick. (laughs) Senator, uh, excuse me, Secretary Clinton. I went to the past there for a moment. Senator Sanders recently said, quote, people should be suspect of candidates who receive large sums of money from Wall Street. And then go out and say, trust me, I'm going to really regulate Wall Street. So you've received millions of dollars in contributions and speaking fees from Wall Street companies. How do you convince voters that you're going to level the playing field when you're indebted to some of its biggest players? Well, I think it's pretty clear that they know that I will. Um, You've got two billionaire hedge fund managers who started a super PAC and they're advertising against me in Iowa as we speak. Uh, So they clearly think I'm going to do what I say I will do. And you can look at what I did in the Senate. Uh, I did introduce legislation to rein in uh, compensation. I looked at ways that the shareholders would have more control over what was going on in that arena. And specifically said to Wall Street that uh, what they were doing in the mortgage market was bringing our country down. Uh, I've laid out a very aggressive uh, plan to rein in Wall Street, not just the big banks. That's a part of the problem, and I am going right at them. I've got a comprehensive, tough plan. But I went further than that. We have to go after what's called the shadow banking industry, those hedge funds. Look at what happened in 08. 
AIG, a big insurance company, Lehman Brothers, an investment bank, helped to bring our economy down. So I want to look at the whole problem, and that's why my proposal is much more comprehensive than anything else that's been put forth. Oh, Senator right. Sanders, you've, you've said that the donations to Secretary Clinton are compromising. So what do you think of her answer? Not good enough. Here's the story. I mean, you know, let's not be naive about it. Why do, uh, why over her political career has Wall Street been a major, the major uh, campaign contributor to Hillary Clinton? Uh, now, maybe they're dumb and they don't know what they're going to get, but I don't <laughs> think so. Here is the major issue when we talk about Wall Street. It ain't complicated. You got six financial institutions today that have assets of 56%, equivalent to 56% of the GDP in America. They issue two-thirds of the credit cards and one-third of the mortgages. If Teddy Roosevelt, a good Republican, were alive today, you know what he'd say? Break them up. Reestablish Glass-Steagall. And Teddy Roosevelt is right. That is the issue. Now, I am the only candidate up here that doesn't have a super PAC. I'm not asking Wall Street or the billionaires for money. I will break up these banks, support community banks and credit unions, Credit unions, that's the future of banking in America. Quick follow-up, because you, you uh, Secretary Clinton, you'll get a chance to respond. You said they know what they're going to get. Look, what are they going to get? I have never heard a candidate, never, who has received huge amounts of money from oil, from coal, from Wall Street, from the military-industrial complex. Not one candidate said, oh, these, these campaign contributions will not influence me. I'm going to be independent. Well, why do they make millions of dollars of campaign contributions? They expect to get something. Everybody knows that. Once again, I am running a campaign differently than any other candidate. John. We are relying on small campaign donors, 750,000 of them, 30 bucks apiece. That's who I'm indebted to. Listen, uh, he makes awesome points that I think resonate with the Democratic base, with the progressive Democratic primary audience. Oh, for sure. Especially that, you know, they're donating. These big banks are donating. Yeah. Why are they donating? Right. They expect something. Right. And it's, he just kind of leaves that out there like they expect something, everybody. Right. Well, this is Hillary Clinton's response. And this is, as I said before, her stepping right on her D. 750,000 of them, 30 bucks a piece. That's who I'm indebted to. Well, John, John, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Personal, personal well, privilege. He has basically, he has basically used his answer to impugn my integrity. Let's be no, frank here. Oh, wait a minute, Senator. Ooh. You know, <laughs> not only do I have hundreds of thousands of donors, most of them small, and I'm very proud that for the first time, a majority of my donors are women, 60%. <laughs> That's attempt number one to just be a shill and try to get political points. That's pandering. That's all that is. The next one is even worse. I represented New York, and I represented New York on 9-11. Uh. When we were attacked, where were we attacked? We were attacked in downtown Manhattan, where Wall Street is. I did spend a whole lot of time and effort helping them rebuild. That was good for New York, it was good for the economy, and it was a way to rebuke the terrorists who had attacked our country. So, you know, it's fine for you to say what you're going to say, but I looked very carefully at your proposal. Reinstating Glass-Steagall is a part of what very well could help, but it is nowhere near enough. My proposal is tougher, 
more effective and more comprehensive because I go after all of Wall Street, not just the big banks. John, please. Are you kidding me? How dare she stand there and insult the American people, these viewers of this debate, and her own voters, her constituency, or prospective constituency, and say that say the reason Wall Street gives her money is because she helped rebuild New York City after 9-11. What do like, you, like that wouldn't have fucking been done anyway. What do you mean insulting when the audience is clapping, right? This, is, this was Nate Silver's reaction. Clinton's response to that question on the strange linkage she drew between Wall Street and 9-11 made very little sense, and yet the crowd in Iowa cheered it. Democrats should remember that the next time they jibe a Republican debate audience for cheering a nonsensical applause line from Donald Trump or Ben Carson. He's once again... <laughs> liberal Democrat, Ben uh, uh, Nate Silver, is exactly right. That is, that is true. The next time you don't like hearing about 9-11 or patriotism or whatever, the thing that gets uh, dragged out by the Republicans, remember this moment if you were a fan of what she did. Because this was, as far as I'm concerned, classless, but also fucking transparent. You, you, you're, not, you're getting called out because a large amount of of money through contributions to your campaign is from Wall Street. It's from banks. It's from, you know, a relatively insidious portion of our country that should be on notice that you will be arrested if you are party to the an- another crash and if you're doing immoral, illegal activity. And then the other thing, I guess, is her invoking women that just come on, you know, we get it. You're you're a woman and you want to rally the troops, but uh, don't be so transparent. And it's, it's, it's desperate when it's this easy to see. So Bernie Sanders directly responds to this and he talks about leading by example and answered with what I consider to be a very respectful answer. He could have just gone at her throat and and gone and kicked her while she was down because this is clearly her scrambling, but he did not. He acted very respectfully. Uh, John, hold on, hold think, on. He was attacked. Glass so was by the way. The idea is that you respond. don't... This issue touches on two broad issues. It's not just Wall Street. It's campaign, a corrupt campaign finance system. And it is easy to talk the talk about ending uh, Citizens United. But what I think we need to do is show by example that we are prepared to not rely on large corporations and Wall Street for campaign contributions. And that's what I'm doing. In terms of Wall Street, I respectfully disagree with you, Madam Secretary, in the sense that the issue here is when you have such incredible power and such incredible wealth when you have Wall Street spending $5 billion over a 10-year period to get, re- re- to get deregulated, okay. the only answer that I know is break them up, All right. reestablish Glass-Steagall. Again, sticking to his talking points, staying on message, and not tearing into her like he very well could have easily done. Right. So a little later on in the debate, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but... Uh, a little later on in the debate, Hillary gets called out directly 
from a question that was asked of her that they took from Twitter about her previous statement about 9-11. And Nancy Cordes with a question from Twitter about this exchange. Uh, there was a lot of uh, conversation on Twitter uh, about guns, but also about your conversation on campaign finance. And Secretary Clinton, one of the tweets we saw uh, said this, I've never seen a candidate invoke 9-11 to justify millions of Wall Street donations until now. The idea being that, yes, you were a champion of the community after 9-11, but what does that have to do with taking big donations? Well. I'm sorry that whoever tweeted that uh, had that impression because I worked closely with New Yorkers after 9-11 for my entire first term to rebuild. And so, yes, I did know people. I've had a lot of folks who give me donations from all kinds of backgrounds say, I don't agree with you on everything, but I like what you do. I like how you stand up. I'm going to support you. And I think that is absolutely appropriate. A non-answer. She doesn't, doesn't address the question and doesn't even talk about uh, the bankers and the corporations that are giving her money. She's talking about individuals who talk to her and say they appreciate her. Right, and then says to the person that asked the question, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Right. I'm sorry the person who tweeted that. It almost was like just kind of pissed off. Yeah. (laughs) And then Bernie Sanders in fucking, goddamn, this guy, classic Bernie Sanders fashion, he jumps back in to throw his weight and support behind the flailing Hillary Clinton. You know, the more I'm thinking about it as we play these clips, Bernie really did come out on top because when she was down, he helped her back up. Mm -hmm. He really is. Just he's a fucking nice guy. Yeah. Well, if if I might, I I think the issue here is, and I I applaud Secretary Clinton. She did. She's a senator from New York. She worked and many of us supported you in trying to rebuild that devastation. But at the end of the day, Wall Street today has enormous economic and political power. Their business model is greed and fraud. And for the sake of our economy, they must, the major banks, must be broken up. Hold on, John, I think somewhere between the... But what is it in Secretary Clinton's record uh, that shows you that she's been influenced by those donations? Well, the influence is that the major issue right now is whether or not we reestablish Glass-Steagall. I led the effort, unfortunately, unsuccessfully, against deregulation because I knew when you merge large insurance companies and investor banks and commercial banks, it was not going to be good. The issue now is, do we break them up? Do we reestablish Glass-Steagall? And Secretary Clinton, unfortunately, is on the wrong side. On the wrong side of the issue is what he finishes there. So um, she responds directly, and it seems to me, I don't mean that she's pissed off or she's out of control, but I think you can sense the anger at the very beginning of her response. Very, There was intensity to what she was saying. The issue now is, do we break them up? Do we reestablish Glass-Steagall? And Secretary Clinton, unfortunately, is on the wrong side. Well, I'll tell you who's on my side. Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, who said my plan for what we should do to reign in Wall Street was more comprehensive and better. Paul Volcker, one of the leading lights of trying to rein in the excesses, has also said he does not support reinstating Glass-Steagall. So, I mean, this may seem like a bit of an arcane discussion. I have nothing against the passion that my two friends here have about 
about reinstating Glass-Steagall, I just don't think it would get the job done. And I'm John, all about making sure we actually get results for whatever we do. So a survey that 538 shared showed that um, basically no one knows what Glass-Steagall means. Right, right. So every time they were saying that during the debate... Most people didn't know what they meant. So just quickly, the Glass-Steagall Act refers to four provisions in the U.S. Banking Act of 1933 that limited commercial banking security activities and affiliations within commercial banks and security firms. So anytime they're talking about Glass-Steagall, they're they're referring to banking and controlling the big bank activity. Just think of it that way. Right. Limiting risk relative to their investments. Because a lot of banks, a lot of people don't know this. You give your money to, to Chase, Chase Bank, and you put it in, in your account, it doesn't just sit there. They use all of the depositors' money and invest it elsewhere and make money that way. And that's what Glass-Steagall did. It limited risk and really tightened down the reins on the bank so they couldn't make risky investments with depositors' money. Uh, among other things, and I don't fully understand it completely because, you know, I'm... Jesse D. I'm not a smart guy. Well, and so now that you're explaining it that way, Bernie Sanders is for putting those restrictions on banks, and Hillary Clinton is not so sure that that is the solution to the problem. That's right. Well, because she's getting lots of money from bankers, and it would be going against her donators, her supporters. It would go against her campaign finance interest to come out in support of that. So, Martin O'Malley has what I think is an awesome, awesome follow-up here, and he fucking blows it. Look, final word, Governor O'Malley, before we go to commercial. John, there is not a uh, serious economist who would disagree that the six big banks of Wall Street have taken on so much power and that all of us are still on the hook to bail them out on their bad bets. That's not capitalism, Secretary Clinton. Clinton, that's crony capitalism. That's a wonderful business model. If you place bad bets, the, the, the taxpayers bail you out. But if you place good ones, you pocket it. Look, I don't believe that the model, there's lots of good people that work in finance, Secretary Sanders. Uh, but Secretary Clinton, we need to step up and we need to protect Main Street from Wall Street. And you can't do that by, uh, by campaigning as the candidate of Wall Street. I am not the candidate of Wall Street. Let me, and I encourage oh, everybody gotta... watching this tonight to uh, please uh, acknowledge that by going online at martinomalley.com. And help me wage this campaign for real American capital. We have to, we have to go for commercial. Really, he gives an articulate, beautiful answer that I think resonates with his, with the Democratic base, and he fucking blows it at the end by begging for money. It, I don't know. It was just distasteful to me. Maybe, maybe I'm alone. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's in a tough spot, right? He is in third place. He really needs people to support him. Yeah, and but, maybe he just needs... Maybe you know, he's desperate. Com- yeah, but looking desperate is bad because yeah. it, it's distasteful. And people are like, I don't want to be jumping on a losing fucking bandwagon. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just bad salesmanship, if anything else. So as part of these last few clips... They, they talked to Bernie Sanders in this question about whether single payer, you know, relative to health insurance and the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, whether single payer is realistic. 
Back to health care by popular demand. Uh, first to you, Senator Sanders. You'd prefer to scrap Obamacare and move to a single-payer system, essentially Medicare for all. Uh, you say you want to put the private insurance companies out of business. Is it realistic to think that you can pull the plug on a $1 trillion industry? It's not going to happen tomorrow. And it's probably not going to happen until we have real campaign finance reform and get rid of all these super PACs and the power of the insurance companies and the drug companies. But at the end of the day, Nancy, here is the question. In this great country of ours, with so much intelligence and so much capability, why do we remain the only major country on earth that does not guarantee health care to all people as a right? Why do we continue to get ripped off by the drug companies who can charge us any prices they want. Why is it that we are spending per capita far, far more than Canada, which is 100 miles away from my door that guarantees health care to all people? It will not happen tomorrow. But when millions of people stand up and are prepared to take on the insurance companies and the drug companies, it will happen, and I will lead that effort. Medicare for all, single-payer system is the way we should go. Again, kind of bread and butter. Not, it's not really going to be a tough question for him to answer. And maybe it's not going to be tough just because he knows that subject matter so well. So I'm starting to see why you're essing Bernie Sanders D so much. <laughs> because several of his answers were, were very thoughtful and made you believe his cause. And he didn't invoke 9-11. He did not. <laughs> He Which, also listen, that's something I hate. I've hated it since since nine eleven. It it bothers me. Well, he also doesn't talk about um, you know how Mexicans are rapists. No, he, he does not. He, he doesn't talk about you know how God sent him a message. You know he doesn't nope. talk about these things. He does not. And that also is, is nice to hear. <laughs> I mean, not here. Nice to not hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, next up, Hillary Clinton gets asked about her flip flop. Her, her multiple positions relative to single payer. And she, she handles this very adroitly because she ends up with a pretty solid applause line at the end. Medicare for all, single payer system is the way we should go. Secretary Clinton, back in, Secretary Clinton, back in 1994, you said that momentum for a single payer system would sweep the country. That sounds Sanders-esque, uh, but you don't feel that way anymore. Why well, not? the revolution never came. <laughs> I waited and I got the scars to show for it. Um, we now have this great accomplishment known as the Affordable Care Act, and I, I don't think we should have to be defending it among Democrats. We ought to be working to improve it and prevent Republicans from both undermining it and even repealing it. I have looked at, I've looked at the legislation that Senator Sanders has proposed, and basically he does eliminate the Affordable Care Act, eliminates private insurance, eliminates Medicare, eliminates Medicaid, TRICARE, Children's Health Insurance Program, puts it all together in a big program which he then hands over to the states to administer. And I have to tell you, I would not want, if I lived in Iowa, Terry Branstead administering my health care. We ought to proudly support the Affordable Care Act, improve it, and make it the model that we know right. it can be. Did she answer the question? No, she just, she says the revolution never came. 
I mean, I, it's kind of disappointing. So, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's kind of disappointing how people cheer so loudly and how she so easily can play the crowd. Oh, well, that's it's seasoned. She's real good. Well, right. But she's not answering the question. Right. And so they're cheering because she's saying these wonderful talking points that they really love. But hey, everybody, she's not answering the question. Well, it, it, by not answering when she just says, well, the re- revolution never came. Oh, so you don't believe that anymore because people don't believe it? So because you didn't get the support that you wanted for the idea, it's no longer a good idea. It's just, it's disingenuous and it's, it's not le- it's not leadership, you know? Well, Bernie Sanders, he does get a chance to respond and it, he has a great response. He gets a great applause line and it gets fucking stepped on by the desperate and overeager Martin O'Malley. <laughs> proudly support the Affordable Care Act, improve it, and make it the model that we know right. it can be. Well, Very let me just sentence. say something. 30 we, seconds. Don't, we don't eliminate Medicare. We expand Medicare to all people. And we will not, under this proposal, have a situation that we have right now with the Affordable Care Act. We have states like South Carolina and many other Republican states that because of their right-wing political ideology are denying millions of people the expansion of Medicaid that we passed in the Affordable Care Act. Ultimately, we have got to say as a nation, Secretary Clinton, is health care a right of all people or is it not? I believe it is. May I jump in here for 30 seconds on health care? I'm sorry, Governor, we've got to take a break or the machine breaks down. (laughs) You're watching the Democratic debate here on CBS. And Hillary Clinton just laughs at him. Yeah, well, it's it's a bummer for Bernie because he he had an awesome line there at the end. It just got it got fucking crushed by Martin O'Malley. You know, he's like a he's like a big oaf who doesn't he's just stomping around in a china shop and knocking over dishes and shit because he's trying to be heard. Yeah, he's desperate to get his word in there. Right. So these last there are six more clips. Three more. There's one question to each of the candidates, which is what crisis that you've experienced qualifies you to be president of the United States? And then they move on to closing statements. So we will let's get to that. They start with Hillary Clinton. And I will just address after each. Soon after your inauguration, you will face a crisis. All presidents do. What crisis have you experienced in your life that suggests you've been tested and can face that inevitable challenge? Secretary Clinton, you first. Well, there are so many, I don't know where to start. (laughs) I guess the one I I would pick is um, the fact that I was part of a very small group that had to advise the president about whether or not to go after bin Laden. I spent a lot of time in the Situation Room uh, as Secretary of State, and there were many very difficult uh, choices presented to us, but... Probably that was the most uh, challenging because there was no certainty attached to it. Uh, The intelligence was by no means absolute. Uh, We had all kinds of uh, questions that we discussed. And, you know, at the end, uh, I recommended to the president that we take uh, the chance uh, to do what um, we could to find out whether that was bin Laden and to finally uh, bring him to justice. 
Um, it was an excruciating experience. I couldn't talk to anybody about it. In fact, after it happened, the president called my husband. He called all the former presidents, and he said to Bill, well, I, I assume Hillary's told you about this. And Bill said, no, no, she hasn't. Um, there was nobody to talk to, and it, it really did give me an insight into the very difficult problems presidents yep. face. Awesome, awesome answer. I, m- massive credit. And it's awesome that this happened at the end of the debate, too, because it kind of, you forget about some of the, the missteps because she was in the Situation Room, was giving counsel to, to President Obama when that decision was being made to kill or not kill, to go into Pakistan under the cover of night with SEAL Team 6. I mean, goddamn, th- she, this puts her on the world stage. It really does raise her to the level of being qualified to run for President of the United States. Right. People have been reporting that this is one of the major things that she did during the debate to kind of show off her experience, which is polling rank. Right. This is my experience. Uh, Go ahead and talk to these guys after you hear about my experience. And it's a bummer. (laughs) I was going to follow it up with this and you led me right into it. It's a bummer for these other two guys now because, well, one, you'll hear Martin O'Malley's answer next, which is just, yeah, there is nothing. I fucking I, I was a governor. Fuck you. I. He's not going to sit there like Sarah Palin and say, well, I had Russia only miles away, and that's why I have international relations experience. Mm-hmm. Meh. He's, he's honest and open about it. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to that, and then we'll listen to Barry Sanders talk about the Veterans Affairs Committee. Like, it's just, seriously, it's a bummer. Governor O'Malley, what crisis proves that you're tested? John, I don't think that there is a crisis at the state or local level that really you can point to and say, therefore, I am prepared for the sort of crises that any man or woman who is the commander in chief of our country has to deal with. But I can tell you this. I can tell you that that as a mayor and as a governor, I learned certain disciplines, which I believe are directly applicable to that very, very uh, uh, powerful and most important of all jobs in the United States president, whose first and primary duty is to protect the people of our country you learn that threats always change. You learn to create uh, a security cabinet. You learn to create feedback mechanisms. You learn to constantly evaluate and understand the nature of the threats that you are being faced with. I have been tried under many different emergencies, uh, and uh, I can tell you that in each of those emergencies, whether they were uh, inflicted by, by drug gangs, whether they were natural emergencies, I knew how to lead and I knew how to govern because I know how to manage people in a crisis and be very clear about the goal of protecting human life. I think living in and around Baltimore, Maryland might just make a person super fucking boring. Because Ben Carson, (laughs) he worked at Johns Hopkins for years, which is in Baltimore, and he is a boring turd, just like uh, Martin O'Malley. But having said that, (laughs) good answer. I mean, he you own it. You just got to face it and say, look, there is really isn't anything. But I have the temperament and I, you know, I'm I'm in a I'm a good manager. I'm a good leader. I'm inspired. I'm I'm going to put people around me. It's it's good. Uh, Bernie Sanders, up next. Senator Sanders, what experience would you draw on in a crisis? John, uh, I had the honor of being chairman of the U.S. Senate Committee on Veterans Affairs for two years. And in that capacity, I met with just an extraordinary group of people 
from World War II, from Korea, Vietnam, all of the wars. People came back from Iraq and Afghanistan without legs, without arms. And I was determined to do everything that I could to make VA healthcare the best in the world, to expand benefits to the men and women who put their lives on the line to defend me. And we brought together legislation supported by the American Legion, the VFW, the DAV, Vietnam Vets, all of the veterans organizations, which was comprehensive, clearly the best piece of veterans legislation brought forth in decades. I could only get two Republican votes on that. We ended up with 56 votes, we needed 60. So what I had to do then is go back and start working on a bill that wasn't the bill that I wanted. Sit down with people like John McCain, sit down with people like Jeff Miller, the Republican chairman of the House, and work on a bill. It wasn't the bill that I wanted, but yet it turned out to be one of the more significant pieces of veterans legislation passed in recent history. So the crisis was, I lost what I wanted, but I had to stand up and come back and get the best that we could. All right, Senator Sanders. Kind of weak sauce. But what does he have to say? You know what I mean? He's got to pick something. And anything that he has to say is going to pale in comparison to I was in the room and helping make decisions <laughs> that led to, to the, the eventual death of, you know, enemy number one, Osama bin Laden. A mythical creature, almost. Mm-hmm. So, a bummer, but it's, it's what it is. I think they handle it pretty well. All right, let's get on to the closing statements. They start with Martin O'Malley, move on to Hillary, and finish with Bernie Sanders. We've ended the evening on crisis, which underscores or reminds us again of what happened last night. Now let's move to closing statements. Governor O'Malley. John, thank you. And to all of the people of Iowa for the role that you perform in this presidential selection process. If you believe that our country's problems and the threats that we face in this world can only be met with new thinking, new and fresh approaches, then I ask you to join my campaign. Go on to martinomalley.com. No hour is too short, no dollar too small. If you, we will not solve our nation's problems by resorting to the divisive ideologies of our past or by returning to polarizing figures from our past. We are at the threshold of a new era of American progress, but it's going to require that we act as Americans based on our principles. Here at home, making an economy that works for all of us, and also acting according to our principles and constructing a new foreign policy of engagement and collaboration and doing a much better job of identifying threats before they back us into military corners. There is no challenge too great for the United States to confront, provided we have the ability and the courage to put forward new leadership that can move us to those better and safer and more prosperous days. I need your help. Thank you very, very much. Not too bad. You know what I mean? Again, plugging for 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 the support. But I think that's where it's appropriate is at the end. Not in your intermittent, you know, it just intermingled <laughs> into your answers throughout. So moving on, Hillary Clinton, closing statement. Secretary Clinton. Well, thank you very much to um, CBS and everyone here this evening for giving us another chance uh, to appear before you. Um, I've heard a lot about me uh, in this debate, and I'm going to keep talking and thinking about all of you uh, because ultimately I think the president's job Uh, is to do everything possible, everything that she can do to lift up the people of this country, starting with our children and 
moving forward. I've spent my entire life since I started as a young lawyer for the Children's Defense Fund trying to figure out how we can even the odds for so many people in America, this great country of ours, who are behind, who don't have a chance. And that's what I will do as your president. I will work my heart out. I need your help. All of you in Iowa, I need you to caucus for me. Please go to HillaryClinton.com and be part of making this country what we know it can and should be. Nothing, uh, nothing real surprising, right? I mean, pretty standard fare. And then finally... Bernie Sanders. John, this country today has more income and wealth inequality than any major country on earth. We have a corrupt campaign finance system dominated by super PACs. We are the only major country on earth that doesn't guarantee health care to all people. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty. And we are the only country in the world, or virtually the only country, that doesn't guarantee paid family and medical leave. That's not the America that I think we should be. But in order to bring about the changes that we need, we need a political revolution. Millions of people are going to have to stand up, turn off the TV, get involved in the political process, and tell the big money interest that we are taking back our country. Please go to BernieSanders.com. Please become part of the political revolution. Thank you. All right, back with some final thoughts in a moment. And that, that is it. That was loud. That was it. Uh, pretty good. You know, it's a Saturday debate. Maybe you and me, Brittany, were the only ones who actually watched it. <laughs> there was not a lot of coverage on this at all. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a bummer compared to other debates anyway. Right. Well, with the last GOP debate, my Twitter feed, I could hardly keep up with it. With this one, I mean, no one was tweeting about right. this. Well, also, like trying to find out who talked most. That, no. It's hard to find any information about any of that because right. I just don't think that people were watching it. Well, we also don't have the resource. It's just a two-man team here. Well, one man, one delicate lady right and uh we don't have the resources to be tracking times and i didn't even watch the debate i have to sit and listen and look at timestamps and fucking write 10 pages of notes mm -hmm. this time three people 10 pages of fucking notes that is insane not good <laughs> that is excessive anyway we're gonna leave you here we appreciate you guys thank you very much you guys are you're our bread and butter mm. as it were <laughs> Really appreciate the support you guys give us through Patreon and PayPal. It is, it really is, it's integral to what we're doing here. And it, it helps us so much more than you can even imagine. Um, what you give may seem like eh, kind of inconsequential to you, but it is, it is the difference between doing this and not doing this sometimes. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. So we love you and appreciate you very, very much. And uh, don't forget to check out episode 172 because there's all kinds of stuff that's been going on and it should prove to be a good one. We love you and appreciate you. And until next time, for Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'll say it again, bread and butter. <laughs>